Well, it's really good to be in your midst again. Different surroundings, different building, but same friendly faces. <laughs> so I'm very pleased to be here. I still think I'm somewhere else. <laughs> Took three flights, 20 hours in the plane, and several hours just layovers at different airports. And right now I think it's between four and five in the morning and I didn't sleep for two nights, basically two nights. I had just a few hours of sleep. I rested a little bit uh, yesterday afternoon. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> it's better if I'm tired and not you. <laughs> but it's always a uh, blessing and a privilege to be able to open the Word of God. And this is what we... Uh, would like to do right at the beginning because this is really what sets us apart from all other groups, clubs, uh, yeah, civil uh, communities. We believe in a risen Lord Amen. by the name of Jesus Christ and this is really the biggest blessing, the biggest hope we have. And we just came from Easter remembering again specifically that he has conquered death. And we are privileged to be his children, his servants, and we can proclaim the gospel. And there is nothing better any one of us can do. So let's just open the Bible. John's Gospel, chapter 17. And these are very familiar verses I probably wouldn't even need to ask you to open the Bibles because you basically know these verses by heart. I hope you do. I, I, I'm very confident that you do because uh, these verses are so familiar. And we will just read a, a few words at the beginning of this chapter. And you know it's the intercessory prayer of the Son of God or the high priestly prayer as it's also called. These things Jesus spoke and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. I think these are just so wonderful verses and we could just fill the whole hour just to meditate and expound on the truths contained in these verses. But I just want to highlight a few specific truths before we go into the presentation. Who has all authority given to him? By the Father. Well, it's very obvious. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has all authority given to him. There is no other power in this world, regardless how mighty a human being thinks he is, a president, a premier minister, a chancellor, or a millionaire, no matter how powerful they think they are, there's still one power greater and higher than the most powerful human being. And I think this applies in a special sense 
to the most powerful human being who will come into this world and govern all the nations, all tongues, all nations. I speak of the Antichrist. Right? And what will Jesus Christ do when he comes back, when he returns? What will he do to the Antichrist who will be the most powerful individual this world will ever know? More powerful than Stalin, Hitler, more powerful than Caesar, more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar, any of these very powerful men in the past. He will be far more powerful. What will Jesus Christ do to that person? Well, we know it from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When Jesus will come back, he will judge that individual who is called the Antichrist by the breath of his mouth. That's all he needs to do to get rid of him. And I think this, this needs to be our outlook when we go into this presentation because we will be confronted with ideas and realities which may in some ways frighten us. And they are real. I'm not, I don't want to diminish the reality of, of the things I will mention. But we need to keep in mind that there is someone who transcends all of the worldly powers, regardless of how powerful they are. And that one is Jesus Christ. My institute is called Berg's Institute, and I chose that name um, purposefully. I had a specific intention by choosing that particular name. Well, obviously, this is not an English word. It's not even a German word. <laughs> it's a Latin term, and indeed, that term appears in the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible. And it appears in Revelation 19, verse 11. If you care to open that particular verse, you may do so. Revelation 19, verse 11. And once again, that verse sets the tone for this presentation. Because once again, we are getting information from God Almighty what will happen in the future when Jesus will come back. Chapter 19, this is his return. Jesus' return into this world. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. But term, true, that's Verax. So it's a name of Jesus Christ. He's called the one who is true or the truthful one. The same verse, uh, word appears in chapter 3, verse 7. So even just in this one a book of the Bible, Jesus Christ is called twice the one who is true. Chapter 3, verse 7, and here in chapter 19, verse 11. And what does he do? Now let's just continue. Verse 12. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. 
and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread and he dreads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is Jesus Christ. And this needs to be our picture in front of us. Because if this is not our understanding of who Jesus Christ is, we will end up in utter despondency. Because this world will never give us any hope. Our hope is exclusively anchored in Jesus Christ who is called the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Amen. And this will give us confidence to live a successful life as his followers, as his witnesses. And this is indeed our duty. But there is a higher duty we have to and we are privileged to worship him. We are privileged to praise his name to uplift his name. And we have already done that today. And we continue to do it. So keep this vision of the Almighty in front of your mind. Christianity in conflict with state court. This is a topic which seems a bit far removed from your daily reality, from your daily life, from your daily routines. I do recognize that fact. But we do live in a state, be it America, be it Germany, or be it Australia, or some other country. So this is indeed something we have to wrestle with. And we also know that the state is not necessarily favorably disposed towards the Christians, or towards the Christian faith. In many cases, and I spoke with Pastor Gary a little bit about the situation here in Australia during the past two days, or especially today. It seems like that the reality around us is becoming more and more difficult to live in. Would you agree? It becomes more and more a struggle. And I know that very well in regards to America, and obviously I have lived in Germany, and it's Pastor Werner would confirm it as well. It's not getting easier. So what should be our outlook? Well, we have to look into it more deeply and, and draw some spiritual lessons from it of the things we discover, always in conjunction with the Bible, the Word of God, and then face reality in the power of God. Never in your own strength. Because if you try to handle that situation, you will see what I mean in a second. If you try to handle that situation, which is really difficult, in your own strength, in your own power, if you place your, own, if you place your confidence in yourself, what will happen? Well, the answer is very easy, right? We will fail. We will fail utterly. There's not enough resources, power, and strength within us to withstand the forces which are arrayed against us, against us Christians, against the church. 
But Jesus has given us a promise. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail. They will not prevail. This is his promise. Has Jesus ever said a lie? No, this is true. So once again, we can hold on to that truth. So what's the reality? I will describe a, a situation to you which may be foreign. This is what I already said. May, may be foreign to you because in some ways we live in a different era, in a different culture. But I need to set the foundation so that you, under, that you can understand the dynamics. And there are spiritual forces at work. So it's not just politics or economics or uh, some culture. There are spiritual forces at work, and we need to recognize these spiritual forces. And in order to set the foundation, I need to start with the ancient world. In all ages and lands, religion has been the potent factor in human life. Would you agree with that statement? Even though we live in a society which seems to be a secularized society, a secularized uh, culture. But I would challenge you, or I want to challenge you to think in different categories. This is true for the ancient world. Religion was at the top. Everything was determined by that particular religion, whatever religion it was. Everything. And I will show you some examples what I mean. In, in antiquity, a religion constituted not alone the Greek and Roman family, but formed a still larger association with city. So it governs the specific relationship you had within a family. So uh, parents with their children, children with their parents, and so on and so forth. Grandparents. But all relationships within a city were also governed by that particular religion, whatever religion it was. Religion determined the city's laws, administration, and often, especially in regards to Rome, imperial expansion. The kind and quality of a religion both created and determined social and political institutions. Now, in our situation, our time, it seems like it's, it's reversed, right? The state, the politicians govern the relationships within our society, not the religious potentates like priests. But once again, I would like to challenge your thinking in that regard. I personally believe, and I'm convinced, doing, having done some in-depth studies, that that situation which was true for the ancient world is still true for our own situation, our own culture, even though it appears to be reversed. Decay and degeneration of a people's social and civil life can be traced back to the decline and decay of their religion. So if we have a cultural decline, what is responsible for that particular degeneration as I have formulated it here, decay, cultural decay? Is it because the politicians are in some ways corrupt, 
just looking for, for their own advancement and for, for their own um, opportunities to, to exercise power. No, it's the religion in that particular society, and I believe this is true in America as it is true here in Australia. The prevailing religion, even though you may not necessarily recognize it, but the prevailing religion, which is often called a civil religion, is the most determining factor in regards to the culture. If it's a high culture or a culture which is in decline. Professor John R. Seeley wrote the following. Quote, The truth is that religion is and always has been the basis of societies and states is and always has been the basis. It is not mere philosophy, but a practical view of life which whole communities live by. From, his, from history, we learn that the great function of religion has been the founding and sustaining of states. Let me statements sing into your mind. How did states come about? What was first, state or religion? Well, it's pretty clearly stated here. If he's correct, I believe he is. Religion was first, and then state followed. And also the sustaining of states. So not just the setting up or establishing of, of a state, but also how that state functions. And at this moment, we are threatened with a general dissolution of states from the decay of religion. Obviously, he, there's more to that particular quote, which I, I cannot um, cite here in its entirety. But let's just look through, again, through the lens of the ancient world. What was the situation back then? The ancient world had a state cult, conceived as an insoluble, insoluble I hope I, I pronounced that correctly, institution. So the state and the cult, or the state religion, were one and the same. You couldn't divide them apart. You could not. One always went along with the other. If you had a state, you had a state religion, and vice versa. Gods believed to be the progenitors of man and nations taking a personal interest in the welfare of, of the nation. So if you, through some misdemeanor or some, something you did which was not quite right, if you angered the gods, that was a state offense. If you transgress some of the religious laws, you transgressed the laws of the state. And priests, what was the role of priests? Fitted by nature or experience for direct and personal intercourse with the gods. They were in direct, at least they thought they were in direct 
contact with the God or gods? What kind of station in life or what kind of position in society did they um, assume? The highest. Priests were the highest potentates in the state. Because once again, religion and state were one and the same. And since the priest had direct, at least as they thought, direct contact with the gods, they were the most powerful persons in that ancient society. And regardless, Babylonians, Assyrians, Romans, Greeks, it doesn't matter which society it was, that principle held true for all of them. So who were the officers of state? Well, once again, the priests held the supreme rank, controlled all affairs of state and cult, ruled sometimes directly in the name of the gods. Again, this is a thought which is very foreign to us. If we just think, well, Pastor Werner is the most powerful person in all of Australia. It's very, very, very foreign to us, right? Usually we think that our pastors are very much at the lowest rank in society, at least in our culture. But back then, it was reversed. And later on, I will argue that this is still, in, this is still the case for today. Even though we may not recognize it or we may not realize it, but this is indeed the case. Well, I hope to make a very convincing argument in stating that it is still in case, or it, it, this is still the case. So the kings, or the king was sometimes the representative of the gods. How could this be? Because king and priest were often one and the same again. If they were not one and the same, priest first, king second. But often they were one and the same. So the king was also the priest, and the priest was also the king. He was either himself a priest or under the influence and control of a priestly caste. The distinction, and I have already mentioned that, the distinction between state and cult is wholly unknown. Wholly unknown. Government was as much concerned with religious as with civil affairs. State laws rested upon the degrees of religion. Cult ordinances were enforced by the power of the state. Religious nonconformity was an offense against the state, and often a capital offense. Often the, the worst crime you could commit if you transgress the laws of a religion, of that particular state cult or civil religion. It was the worst crime you could commit and you deserve to be executed. Well, how, is it in, how was it in Israel, in ancient Israel? Was this true for Israel as well? What do you think? The form of a Jewish state was inseparable from the idea of a kingdom of God. Same principle applies. Well, there are some very distinct differences as well, and I will come to them. I'm not skipping over them. But let's just establish the basic truth as well, that that principle, state and cult, 
being the same also applied to ancient Israel. Several developments in Israel during the time of the prophets produced far-reaching results. And now we are slowly but surely progressing. We are slowly but surely progressing to bring out the truths where the differences made a big difference <laughs> in regards to how state and cult functioned. Because ultimately, I will give you already a clue what was the ultimate result? What was in the mind of God in regards to that state-called situation? Well, he wanted to separate the two. He wanted to separate the two. And only God could do that. No man, how powerful he was or claimed to be, was capable of separating the two entities. Because the most powerful, uh, most powerful men in that kind of society were the priests, and they were not interested in getting rid of their power, stately power. So how did God do it? That should be our question. How did God do it? And the other question which needs to concern us is, what happens if a church merges with a state again? Right? That is a problem. I hope you see the problem. If God wants to separate these two entities, and if a church is eager <laughs> to get back into that kind of relationship with the state, calls itself state church, for example, do you see this or perceive this as a problem? If God wants to keep them apart? Do you see that problem? So you, you ought to know how, how my argument goes. I argue against the combination or against the merging of state and church. This is my, my main argument. And I base it on the argument that God wanted to put both entities apart. And now I present to you the way how he did it. And he did it ingeniously. What else would you expect? We deal with God. He has all means available to him. He can do whatever he wants to, right? If he sets his mind to do something or to accomplish something, can he do it? Is he almighty? Can he do it? Did he do it? Yes. And here's how he did it. Several developments in Israel during the time of the prophets produced far-reaching results. What are these far-reaching results? Separation of state and court. The Jewish nation, as the people of God, fails to fulfill its purpose. True Israel is not all Israel. Fails in the task it was commissioned to do. Right? We know Israel was faithless, unfortunately. Right? This is what almost all the prophets proclaimed. People of Israel were faithless to their God. So they didn't do it. And yet God even used that kind of faith, uh, faithlessness for his own ends. 
king's unfaithfulness and collapse of a Jewish state in the north and south where the ground which gradually cleared for another religious structure. So, yes, we know the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom were not favored to their God. So ultimately, what happened? What happened to these two states? First, the northern, northern kingdom, what happened to it? Pardon me? Taken away by the Assyrians. 722. And the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, was also taken away. 586 by Babylon. Correct. So, even though this was punishment for that faithlessness, God used it for a very different purpose apart from punishing these nations. But let's just uh, concentrate on Elijah first. And then we will return to what I just uh, mentioned in regards to the nation of Israel being in exile. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I even, I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Is this true? Is this true? Was he correct in that statement? Well, obviously he was not quite correct. Yet I believe 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God preserved, let's just call it a remnant, of his people who have not abandoned the true worship, the true God. They have not bowed their knees to Baal. A remnant. This is a very important word in the Bible, right? The remnant appears over and over and over again. And that obviously was the Lord's doing. Formation, even through the time of Isaiah, formation of a little community of devout followers of Yahweh in Israel was a new thing in the history of religion. Up till then, no one had dreamt of a fellowship of faith. Why not? Why was there no fellowship of faith up to that time? And I'm talking now about the time of, of, the, prophet of uh, the prophet Isaiah. Why was there no fellowship? Because, once again, state and court were one and the same thing. So there was no fellowship separate from from a state. Uh, fellowship of faith disassociated from all national forms didn't exist. Maintained without the exercise of ritual services didn't exist. Bound together by faith in the divine word alone. 
up till that moment when God preserved verse 7,000 during the time of Elijah and when also a faithful community of true worshippers of Yahweh during the time of Isaiah. That was a new thing. You have to keep this in mind. Something utterly new. Something like that has never existed in world history up to that point. And this needs to grab our imagination because this is so utterly important for us as a church. If this would not have happened, would we have that assembly today? Would we have assembly on Sunday? The answer is no. A categorical no. We would not have a church at all. If we would want to worship the state God, we would need to go to the city hall or to a to some state festival, right? Some holy day which the state has set up, like Martin Luther's Day, for example, Martin Luther King's Day in, in America, or President's Day, George Washington, President's Day. These are the holy days the state has set up for some type of, well, let's just call it religious Celebration, right? So this this would yeah this would be our type of religion. This we would gather for these types of holy days in a public space, public arena, but we would not come together in a church. That would be utterly impossible. The state would not allow it. There is no separate separate um, room for a church to exist apart from state function, from a state holiday celebration. Birth of a new era in the Old Testament religion. And this is, if you read just through the Old Testament, this is, this is something you very quickly miss. Right? You read through the prophets, you hear about all these uh, pronouncements of judgment on Israel or some of the other pagan nations, Babylon, Assyria, and some of the others. And you miss almost the most important aspect which happened during Old Testament times. Where God preserves and gathers a community, a very small community of faithful followers. Which eventually blossoms in the birth of the church, the New Testament church. But it started right, uh, right at that time. This was the first step in the emancipation of spiritual religion from the forms of political life. A step not less significant that all its consequences were not seen till centuries had passed. Even those who gathered in these small communities of faith in Israel had no comprehension what ultimately would uh, flow out of that development. And what would flow out of that is a worldwide church of Jesus Christ. Including here, Australia, America, Germany, Indonesia, South Africa all over the world. They had no comprehension of that. How could they? I couldn't have 
imagine that as a member of that faith community. But this is what God had in mind. And slowly but surely, he puts it into practice. If Israel would have stayed in, is in the land of Israel or Palestine, they would have never realized, never come to the understanding that they have, they have to separate from their state. What did God do? He sends them far away. Far away. To Babylon, to Assyria. And he brings the world empires of their day, the empires of Babylon, Persia, Macedonia, and Rome, into the land to govern that particular you know, land in order to teach his people the most important lesson he wanted to teach them. Because civil government was all of a sudden exercised by hostile and hated foreign potentates. Right? As long as the people of Israel were in their own land, had their own king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, they were quite content, quite happy with that situation. They would not have wanted to do anything else. But all of a sudden, the Caesar in Rome was the governing authority in the land of Israel. And they surely didn't like that situation. So they were keenly motivated, right? Keenly motivated to initiate that particular separation. Israelites were driven back upon their religious and national hopes and ideals. See how God separates state and church all of a sudden in regards to the situation of Israel? What became utterly important to them in that situation where Rome governed the land of Israel? Well, their religion, right? They focused upon their religion because they couldn't focus on state power because they didn't have it. They lost it. God took it away. Now what became very important to them? Well, it was their religion. Did they practice, it, practice that particular religion faithfully? Well, once again, we know they didn't. At least most of them didn't. But even that was used by God in a special way, for a special purpose. Israelites during the time of exile were unable to appreciate the full significance of their captivity, conceived the idea of a worshipping congregation as distinct from the civil community. Okay, slowly but surely that process is being put into motion. Prophets sowed terms of the idea of a worshipping community. This is more or less just summary of what I already stated. Christ furnished the apostles with an idea which came to fruition in the formation of the Christian churches. What was that idea? 
Matthew chapter 16. Was, what was that particular idea? Why did Jesus disciple the apostles? That should be the question. What was his main duty? What did Jesus communicate to his disciples as of first importance in regards to their future task? Well, we know, okay, it's, it's the Great Commission. We know that. But the Great Commission contains a specific commandment, disciple, go forth in all the nations, disciple and baptize the believers, right? Teach them all the things I commanded you. Well, what is the, the area or the, the place, the correct place for that to happen? It's called the church, right? That was the most important idea Jesus communicated to the, the apostles or his, his disciples. He wanted to make sure they understand that there is a difference, a difference between state and church, a vital difference. You cannot mix one with the other. This is impossible. Even though this was the situation for many, many centuries, even millennia, that was the situ uh, situation, but that cannot endure any longer because God has a special purpose for his people, for his church. And the church needs to gather. The church needs to separate itself from the state in order for the church to, okay, purify itself, to disciple the believers, to proclaim the gospel to that world out there. That was their purpose. And this is why they needed to separate themselves from the state, from the world. How can they witness truthfully and faithfully to that world which is totally lost in sin and disobedience to God Almighty. How can they witness to that world if they are one and the same? Utterly impossible. But a separation needed to happen in order for them to be truthful witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once again, if you take that argument, which is my argument, and turn it on its head, if the church wants to go back to the state. Can they be faithful witnesses? The answer is no. No. They will not be able to fulfill the great commandment. So the church needed to be uh, established. What did Jesus Christ do? He gathered around himself a company of disciples. How easy is that? <laughs> I mean, it's so ingenious. This was his, his intent. He wanted to separate a few people away from society and teach them individually for three years on the side. Right? He didn't go to the palace of Caesar or Pilate or the Sadducees or even the Pharisees right? to interact with them on that kind of level, with that kind of instruction. He took 12 individuals out of Galilee, and Galilee was, so, was the, the area of the country which was, well, let's just call it in our terms, low class, 
low class. It was not high society in Jerusalem. It was low class. From that low class kind of culture, he selected 12 to follow him or asked them to follow him in order that, in, in order that he could teach them. And that was the nucleus of the church. So he gathered around himself a company of disciples, intimated that great changes are before men. What kind of changes? I already said it. One big great chance, uh, change. Indicated that new associations will be formed. What Jesus Christ did not do threw up a constitution for the future worshiping community. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Why didn't he do it? Because that looked like something a king would do. Right? Now, I'm not saying eventually that happened. I mean, Paul wrote several uh, epistles to the pastors, and yes, there will be elders instituted and deacons. So, I'm not saying God entirely left that aspect out of a picture. I'm not saying that. But he put it in place at its correct time. Correct? And this was not the time yet. Because first, that separation needed to take place. And Jesus didn't want the disciples to be confused. Gave systematic teaching concerning its offices and their functions. Once again, this looked very much like something a state would do, a government would do. Framed rules of order for the coming assembly. Outlined rubrics for the guidance of its public worship. Well, if you read through the Gospels, that seems a bit strange. But I think here's the answer to it. Jesus didn't want to confuse the disciples in regards to the true task he had in store for them. The true task was prefaced on the requirement of utter, utter separation between state and church. Why did the leaders of the Jewish nation dislike Jesus? Have you ever asked this question when you were reading through the Gospels? Why didn't the Pharisees and the Sadducees like Jesus or the high priests? What was uh, something in the teaching of Jesus or the behavior of Jesus which totally offended the ruling powers in Israel, meaning the religious leaders of that particular nation at the time. What was it? What was it? I can give you the answer, and you know the answer already, based on what I already said. They disliked that Jesus, and they very much realized that this was, this was the most important task Jesus was performing. They disliked the separation of state and religion. Why? Because they lost their civil power. If that would become reality, remember the priests were the highest potentates in the ancient society. If that separation would take place, they would slip down the ladder of authority almost to the very bottom. And they surely didn't like that. 
They didn't like that. And obviously, by reading through the Gospels, you know that they were extremely hostile to Jesus. You know. What did they do? They planned to kill him. And that, came, that plan came into their mind very quickly. It didn't uh, enter their mind at, after the three-year period. It came into their mind very, very quickly. They knew I realized what Jesus was doing. Taking away their worldly political power. So we need to get rid of that Jesus, that troublemaker. We need to kill him. So they secured Christ's condemnation by the Roman government. Why Roman government? Well, they were still thinking in these categories, right? State and court are one and the same. Yes, the function of the state, the power of the state can be exercised, can be called upon to do something like that, getting rid of a troublesome person. And then obviously they rejoiced in Christ's crucifixion. Finally, we solved that problem. So they fought. What was the reaction of the disciples? Did they get the message? Did they comprehend what Jesus really wanted to teach them for three years? Private tutoring. <laughs> I, wished, I wished Jesus would tutor me one-on-one for three years. But perhaps I wouldn't get it either. <laughs> well, we know they were slow of uh, well, slow to comprehend. When the spirits returned each to his home, they left with a memory of a lost cause, had no plans for the future. Right? They didn't comprehend. After three years of one-on-one tutoring or discipleship, they still didn't get it. Why? Because that thought of the uh, unity of state and church, uh, state and court, was so ingrained in their, their mind that they couldn't conceive anything else. Would I? Probably not. Would I understand that? Probably not. Because I, well, they grew up in that situation, right? Every day this was reality for them. And all of a sudden, they were challenged to think in, in a very different way, in a very different category. And it was just too much for them. Right? What needed to happen? Well, we know what happened. After the resurrection, right? When Jesus came back from the grave, he recalled the despondent disciples, brought them to Jerusalem and Galilee, commissioned them to evangelize the world after the resurrection. That made all the difference in the world. Now, all of a sudden, it dawned on them. They understood, and probably Jesus once again helped them to understand. He, he spent 40 days after the resurrection in the company of his disciples. And I'm pretty sure he made very clear to them during these 40 days what his intent was. So evangelizing the world can only happen through a church which is totally separate from a state. 
totally separate from the state. This is the only way how we can evangelize the world. And Jesus made that very clear. But something else was needed. <laughs> okay, now the disciples understood what their task was. They need to separate themselves from the state. They need to create faithful communities called church. They need to go out, well, be disciples, and then go out to evangelize the world, proclaim the gospel. Yes, we understand that. Could they do it? Could they do it? They understood it. Something else was necessary, right? Acts, chapter 1. <laughs> Pastor Werner smiles already. <laughs> he knows what's coming. Verse 8. You have to tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit will be poured out on you. And that happened on Pentecost. Right? So Pentecost was utterly important for that test to be fulfilled. Without Pentecost, no church and no witness to the world. It's the power through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Power of the Holy Spirit. I cannot emphasize that enough. Right? Right? No church without the Holy Spirit. No world evangelization without the Holy Spirit. No church separate from the state power without the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, you can endure in that situation where you're not part of a state anymore. Especially if a state starts to persecute you. Because this is the next step, right? First, the Jewish authorities resented the plain declaration of apostolic preaching. Forbade men to speak in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Compelled the disciples to decide between allegiance to Jesus Christ and to the Jewish state. Regarded the disciples of Jesus as cold members deserving nothing but grave suspicion, open hostility, bitter persecution. So the moment you try to separate yourself, you're, you are a follower of a specific religion, you try to separate yourself as a member of that particular religion from the state, what will the state do? In every single incidence, without any exception, what will the state do? What will the state, how will the state react to that situation? If you separate yourself, step by step, from the state, right? What happened to Jesus, right? What happened to the disciples? And it happened immediately. What was the response of the disciples? Okay, the state becomes a hostile entity, right? And you know the reason now. Because the state doesn't allow any community of followers of a religion apart from state power, state control. It, that's what a state is. It wants to control. Control all subjects or citizens. What is the response of the disciples? What should be our response? Was that persecution of the early Christians in God's providence? Did it happen in God's providence? If it happened in God's providence, was there a divine purpose behind it, which is a good purpose? Right? A good purpose. 
in the midst of, of persecution, well, what is that good purpose? It bound them together by a common devotion. Right? The pressures from outside were increased. What is the response, the reaction of the disciples? What should be ours? Let's stick together. Let's come together. Let's help each other out. Let's sustain one another. Right? So that is the positive response. Okay, we don't like being persecuted. Who does? Not me. But there's a good purpose in God's providence behind it. We come together. And we help each other. Will I sustain myself or can I sustain, can I survive in that situation apart from the church? Well, asking a question is answering it. No. I cannot exist. I cannot live my Christian life apart from all of you. Apart from all of the believers of the church we attend. That is not possible. Not possible. Oh, let's, let's go back. Um, well, this is how the new community was constituted. Found that new bond of faith took precedence over all other ties. Right? We should be obedient to the state government. Romans 13. Unless the state government demands of us to do something which goes against our faith. In that case, and only in that case, we are called to disobey. Right? Because, well, right here, our, our tie to Jesus Christ is far stronger than any other tie. Be it the state, be it the family, be it the, my children, my friends. No, my relationship, my connection to Jesus Christ, being in Jesus, that in Jesus, being in Jesus is the strongest tie, the strongest allegiance I have to anyone. And when something else happened, obviously they, are, they were forced, forced to separate themselves, the church, the Christian church, forced to separate itself from the Jewish cult. Why? Because the Jewish cult was not true Yahweh worship. It was a false religion. So once again, there were several positive um, consequences flowing out of that particular persecution. And then obviously, if you are persecuted here in this life, in this situation, today, What do you do? You focus your eyes on the future. Your hope is being strengthened, right? If you don't have any hope down here, well, you fix or you place your hope on Jesus, right? Efforts of the Jewish authorities to break up this new movement of Christ followers were the causes needed to develop the church and to complete its organization. So the 
persecution was utterly necessary for these two things to happen. No persecution, no true church of Jesus Christ. Now, this may be a bitter pill for us to swallow. I understand that. Once again, I don't like to be persecuted. Right? Who does? Or being disadvantaged. But it's utterly necessary for certain other very important things to happen. Without that negative experience, some very positive experiences would not happen in my own life. Otherwise, God would not allow persecution to happen. And, okay, let's just be very, very open with one another. If we are in certain situations which are very unpleasant, and I mentioned some, some of the situations to Pastor Gary, very frustrating for, uh, situations, and, and they are not even the worst, I mean, they are very worst situations other Christians face or have to face when I do. But if this would not happen, God could not accomplish his purpose in my life. Now, in the very situation, often this is not necessarily the thought which comes to my mind right away. <laughs> right? Often it is like, let me get out of here <laughs> quickly. I don't want to be here. Right? That would, uh, was usually the, the, the thought or... Do I want to be in the hospital? Right? I want to get out of here. I want to be with my friends, my family, my church. Why do I have to be in the hospital? Well, you have to be in the hospital. I have to endure certain frustrating situations and all of you experience something similar, whatever it is. And I'm pretty sure every single one of you has a story to tell, without exception. If you are a true follower of Jesus, you have a story to tell. And probably more than just one story. But God could not fulfill his purpose in your life without that. And that is the higher, higher intentional purpose of God. Now, it may not become immediately obvious to, to me in the specific situation. may not. But perhaps years later. Perhaps never. Perhaps... I will have to wait until I will be in heaven and then I will realize, thank you God, yes, I needed to be hit over the head and yes, you had a very, very good purpose for me to be in that situation. The church wouldn't have developed no persecution, no church, remember that. And once again, after the church was established, it needed to be organized. There would have been no organization, no elders, no deacons, and so on and so forth, without persecution. Christian church exchanged new bonds of faith for old bonds of race. Now, this is a, a side thought in regards to the nation. Obviously, the nations at that time were intimately linked with the idea of race. I'm of that particular race. I'm a Babylonian. So the Babylonian state is where I belong to. I'm a Syrian, so the Assyrian state 
is where I belong to. So what happened? Christ got rid, or God got rid of all racism. No one race was superior to any other race. They were all equal in Jesus Christ. Remember Colossians, there is no Scythian, and so on and so forth, no barbarian, no free, no slave. All are one in Jesus Christ, no racism. And this is why we can come together as a church and should come together as a church. Me a German, when a German, Irish German mixture over there. <laughs> and I don't know, a Serbian, I believe, right? This is why we come together from different nations in order to glorify God and His wonderful purpose with us. And we show His glory by being a church of multiple ethnicities, races. This is to worship Him. And then, once again, let's just repeat it. The church assumed a visible form and organic structure and differentiated itself from an old civil community. And let's just get to the last slide. I have some, some other slides too. But let's just stop at that slide. What was the glorious outcome of all of it? Remember, it started in the Old Testament, right? With Elisha and then the faithful community of believers during the time of Isaiah. And then, in particular, the discipleship of the twelve apostles during Jesus' earthly ministry. And then the establishment of a church at the day of Pentecost by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. What was the glorious outcome? Formation of a Christian church across the known world. Just look at the map. Look at the map. And this happened within just a few years. This was the outcome. Remember that map. If, if your mind would be a CD, burn that map on your CD, <laughs> on your mind. This was the outcome. The rise of Christianity in the world resulted in a new order of life, developed new sets of ideas, initiated a long process of historical developments. People got saved. That was the end result across the known world within just a few years. So if we are a people of God, if we assemble on a given Sunday, worshiping God, opening the scriptures, singing worship songs, praying with one another, knowing that the Holy Spirit fills us, knowing that Jesus Christ in our midst as he has promised to us, what should be our task? If we truly do it as God commanded us to do, to be a church, a true New Testament church, that's the outcome, the natural outcome. We don't need to be forced. Like I spoke with Pastor Gary, I asked him, how do you do that? I mean, he didn't know what I was going to show. But how do you do it? Well, we go to specific places in Melbourne on a regular basis and we just preach the gospel. We want people to hear the gospel and to get saved and to come to our church to be discipled in order to 
continue doing that. This is why I'm here. I mean, why should I be here? Why should I take upon myself to fly for 20 hours in three different planes, barely sleep for two nights, stand here when it's 5 o'clock in the morning, and this is how I feel right now. <laughs> why should I be here? Right? I have only one purpose. And it's right there. Right there. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that we can worship you in truth and in the spirit. Lord, thank you that you are in our midst as you have promised it to us, that two and three are gathered in your name. You are with them. Lord, and we know that you will equip us, you will give us the fullness of the Spirit, you will help us to proclaim the gospel wherever there is an opportunity for us to do so. And we know that this is not something we do in our own strength. We utterly are dependent upon you and rely upon you because all authority is given to you in heaven and on earth. And this is what we keep before our eyes. And this is why we serve you in order to glorify you and honor you. Amen.